It's kind of impossible not to be aware of the 1939 Wizard of Oz movie. You may have seen some of the other movies in the Oz universe too. Perhaps you found your way to one of the 14 books in L. Frank Baum's original book series. Maybe you've even listened to the Oz episodes of this podcast. Those would be episodes 64 and 135, if you want to get specific. But if you're anything like me, there is a whole world of Oz content and history that has yet to hit your radar. On episode 228, my guests and I are here to help you with that. For example, here is a fun fact. Did you know that L. Frank Baum was desperate to end the Oz series after book seven? It's true. He wanted to move on to other projects, and it is very clear in the final pages of The Emerald City of Oz that he was not interested in revisiting Dorothy and the gang. Obviously, the joke was kind of on him, since he would go on to write seven more installments. We get into more of the details of this little nugget of publishing history on this episode, and we also explore the fun, fantastical road trip that is the Emerald City of Oz. In this particular book, Dorothy's Aunt Em and Uncle Henry join their niece in the Land of Oz and are treated to a tour of some pretty cool places. At the same time, Oz's enemies are planning to take Queen Ozma down. Over the next hour, you will hear my guests and I compare notes on our favorite scenes and unpack the challenges of enjoying content meant for kids as adults. We also take a close look at Dorothy's character, consider the ways in which Oz collides with the real world, discuss Oz as a pacifist, utopian society, and more. Jen DeLuca lives in the Arizona desert with her husband and almost too many rescue cats. Her Ren Fair romance series was inspired by her time as a volunteer tavern wench with a local renaissance fair. The latest installment, Well Traveled, is now available wherever books are sold. Learn more about Jen's work at www.jendeluca.com and follow her on Instagram at jendelucawrites and on Twitter at jd underscore l. Thanks to Jen for taking the time to join me on this episode. I would like to send a big thank you to all of you. Just by listening, you help SSR continue going strong. If you like what you hear, please make sure that you are subscribed so that you will be the first to know about every new episode. You can also leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You probably get sick of hearing this request from all of your favorite podcasters, but there really is a reason for it. More ratings and reviews means more eyes on our shows. The recommendations algorithm gets smarter so that more book lovers and nostalgia nerds can find their way to SSR. And as we know, more is always merrier. You can also help me spread the word on social media by tagging your favorite episodes and encouraging your followers to check out the work I do. The show is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Like all of my guests from the last few months, Jen DeLuca was kind enough to participate in a fun, rapid-fire Q&A session with me. You can access that, along with the SSR Discord channel, the SWR Book Club, monthly newsletters, and more as a Patreon supporter. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, at the link in SSR's Instagram bio, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. My friends at Inkwell Threads recently dropped more adorable bookish swag. My favorite new item is a crewneck sweatshirt decorated with Valentine's conversation hearts printed with common romance tropes. Anything in the Inkwell Threads product line would make a perfect gift for your Valentine or for yourself. And you can get 20% off your order with the code SSRPOD. 
Again, that's code SSRPOD at Inkwell Threads for 20% off all tees, sweatshirts, totes, stickers, and more. Now, let's make our way down the yellow brick road and go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jen. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I need to launch into song somewhere over the rainbow, (laughs) that we're out of the woods song that, you know, people forget about when they're trotting down the yellow brick road. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What are the other good ones? We're, We're having an Oz day, everybody. And we are talking about the sixth book in L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz series. It is called The Emerald City of Oz. And that was new to me. So, Jen, You introduced me to this title. Mm -hmm. We went back and forth quite a bit about what book we were going to read for today's episode. And I would love to hear from you first about the significance of Oz in your life as a young reader and why you chose this book specifically to share with me today. Absolutely. Like in a nutshell, Oz was everything to me as a kid. I imprinted very young on The Wizard of Oz and I'm a Gen X kid. So I grew up in the era where it came on once a year and it was an event you know, The Wizard of Oz. And when I say it was an event, I mean, I was obsessed. My mother would make themed dinners. I remember, I remember emerald colored rice for some reason. I think she put food coloring in it. I mean, <laughs> she definitely That's indulged. Amazing. She indulged my obsession. I had, I had a, a blue gingham Dorothy dress that I ruined by playing in the sandbox in it. It was my life. It was everything to me. And probably had multiple copies of the original book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Probably had the original. I probably had, you know, like there's always like little golden book type story book versions. And one day, and I remember this so distinctly, I was probably in the between six and eight range. I I wandered downstairs from the children's section of the library in High Point, North Carolina, to the adult section. And for some reason, that was where they shelved the other Wizard of Oz, the other Oz books. And that was the day that I learned there were 13 other Oz books. And my brain exploded. Because, Like I said, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with Oz. I, I wanted everything to do with it. And I walked out. I, I don't even remember why I did this, but I found, and I'm pretty sure it was the 10th book because I read them so out of order. I didn't even care. Just so excited to find me, you know, imagine, you know, I mean, it happens today when you're, you know, you, you find a, a new, uh, new favorite author and then you find out they have a huge backlist and you're just like, oh God, score, you know, and you're so excited to just like yeah. dive in like Scrooge McDuck swimming through the coins. It's just, you're so psyched. <laughs> that was me as a little kid finding out that there were 13 other Oz books that he wrote. So obsessed. I have all the little, um, I have all the little paperbacks. They're, they're still in storage because we just moved and our books are still packed, but covers are still fall, are falling off and everything because I bought them when I was little. So absolutely obsessed with Oz and everything to do with it as a kid. So that was, that was one reason I wanted to talk about one of the Oz books. And I picked Emerald City because it was the sixth one 
And it was when he was deciding to, to quit writing the series. I think he was sick of it. I think he had, you know, he'd written six of them. And the man wrote so many other books besides Oz. He was very much a dilettante of, of all kinds of things. He was into, he was into, um, you know, he was into writing books, but he was also into movies. He was getting into the emergent movie industry, stage plays, theater. He, he did a lot of different things. So I think he was kind of ready to be done with the Oz series. And so I, I picked it because I thought that was an interesting kind of moment in the history of the Oz books. And then also as someone at the time, I, you know, I put out my new book was the last one under contract. So I wasn't sure what I, I'm not sure what I'm doing next. So it was kind of a good moment, I think, for me to, to pick that book and kind of feel like I knew how he felt with the, the, the potentially potentially ending a series. Oh, that is so interesting that you have that parallel with him. I'm so glad you shared that bit of history about the series because when I was doing research for this conversation, I couldn't get over how fascinated I was by this, really like the significance of this book, as you mentioned, Jen. So what I understand is that he had written the first five books in the Oz series, and they, of course, had been beloved pretty quickly. But he had been trying really hard to make a name for himself with these other series. And I didn't know that he had included cameos of characters from some of those other books in the Oz books, because he really was hoping to catch the attention of young readers that they would then go look at those other books that he'd written, mm-hmm. like these little Easter eggs, like Taylor Swift style Easter yeah. eggs almost. Like, <laughs> isn't this a cool little character? Go read more. Right. Um, in that way, he was very ahead of his time with doing this kind of funky world building, but it just was not happening. And so he wanted to wrap up the series on this book. And I'm sure we'll talk more about this as we get into this conversation, but it's very clear at the end of this book that he was done. Yeah. Like, he wanted <laughs> the book to close out the series. This is it friends. Thanks for being along for the ride. Like we laughed, we cried. It was better than cats. We are not talking about Oz anymore. Yes. (laughs) But the kids wanted more. And it sounds to me like, you know, his publisher at some point probably was like, look, all of these other, you know, non-Oz books that you're writing are beginning to cannibalize the sales of your Oz books, which is really where the magic is happening, literally and figuratively. And so why don't you keep going? And I actually found a review that was written in, I believe, the Portland Telegram, in which the reviewer said something like, the idea was that like, this is so ridiculous that L. Frank Baum wants to end the Oz series. The only way that he could really do that is to die, which is very dark, <laughs> but ended up kind of being the the sign of things to come because he did work on these books until he died. And yep. then the last few, I believe there were collaborators that sort of helped him wrap things up. So I agree. Like, this is a really fascinating piece of Oz history. So whether you are somebody who is familiar with the book series or not, I mean, if you live in the world, you kind of like know about The Wizard of Oz, even if it's just through the movie. And um, yeah, I thought that that was really cool. So I'm glad that you opened my eyes to this little piece of publishing history. Yeah, and it is really interesting. I was doing a little bit of of reading to remind myself of of his life and his, you know, his biography and, and the sequence in which he did things. And Looks like there were three years between, you know, between uh, Emerald City and the next book, which was Patchwork Girl. So, yeah, one of the I think it was in Wikipedia or something, but it said, like, due to financial reasons, he you know went back. So it's obviously that he tried to do these other things, write these other books, and they just weren't catching on the way that the way that the Oz books did. And his publishers were like, you know, go back. Yeah. Come on. Like, we see what's working here. Yeah. 
But I, I guess I can see like maybe he thought that he was just writing this like one or two little fantasy book arc, but he wanted to write, you know, something different and to be so deep in world building with a series like Oz, if you don't want to do that anymore, then you really don't want to do it anymore. Because I would think to write a book like this, you have to be really totally invested in continuing to explore this universe that you've created. Yeah, absolutely. So he had also just moved to Hollywood when he was working on this book because he was also working on the silent film, The Wizard of Oz. And so it was kind of an interesting turning point in his life as well. I wonder if he was like, now I live in Hollywood and like I do different things. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, his background was in the theater. You know, that was kind of his first his first career. I mean, well, I mean, he did a lot of different things. He was a salesman. He was, you know, he, he ran a store. He had a lot of failed businesses. And it sounds like he was very much a, a dreamer kind of personality his whole life, which is good if you're in the entertainment industry, I think. But yeah, he moved to Hollywood and was definitely, I think, really getting into the film industry. And really, I think I really feel like he thought, you know, he could, you know, now make it big in film and wouldn't have to write books anymore or wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have to write books for the money anymore and could just sort of do what he wanted. Before we jump into the content of the Emerald City of Oz, I do just want to kind of like set listeners up with where we have been so far on SSR with all things Oz. So we have previously covered both Ozma of Oz and The Wizard of Oz, two other books in the series. I will make sure that I include links to both of those episodes in the show notes for this episode that you're listening to now. I will also let you know that in the episode about The Wizard of Oz, my guests and I talk extensively about some of the problematic notes of L. Frank Baum's biography. So I just want to make sure that listeners are aware that we're not going to be covering that today, but I am aware of the issues inherent with this author and we're not here to celebrate those parts of his background so please do go check out that episode to learn more about about this and I want to acknowledge that before we go any further and I also want to say that I had never read any of the other books in the series other than the Wizard of Oz before I started the podcast so I was really into the movie when I was a little kid as well I have great memories of watching the movie I'm a millennial but I think Even like when I was really little, like seeing it once a year was such a big deal. And then at some point I found my way to the book. But yeah, I had never, I I don't think I even knew that there were 14 books in total until I started the podcast. And we covered Ozma of Oz first. So that was kind of interesting because it was a lot of pieces of the story that I wasn't familiar with. And now I have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know up front that the Emerald City of Oz, I think is actually my favorite of the Oz books that we've covered on the show so far. Oh, yay. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It reminded me a lot of the Phantom Tollbooth and Mm. also of um, Alice in Wonderland, which we covered not so long ago on the show as well. Oh, I could see that. Okay. Yeah. So one of the other interesting distinctions with the Emerald City of Oz is that it's the only one of the Oz books that is told with these like dual plots. So on one hand, we have the story of the Gnome King, who is this horrible villain who is out to get Ozma of Oz, the ruler of Oz, and all that she oversees. And then, of course, we have the happier plot line, what's taking place in the Land of Oz with Dorothy and the gang that we're more familiar with. So where do you want to start, Jen? Like, should we just jump in and talk about what's happening with Dorothy when we come to the beginning of this book? Sure. I think jumping in is fine. Let's jump right in. So let's talk about the happy stuff. We're going to go to Kansas. And it's, like, not that happy, but it's happier than what's happening with the Gnome King. (laughs) It's all relative in the land of Oz. This is a fantastical world, of course. So we know that Dorothy has been in the land of Oz 
again, anybody who lives in the world knows that Dorothy Gale of Kansas has been to the land of Oz. But in this book, we find that she has actually returned to Oz because in this version of the universe, you can kind of come and go as you please. That's not going to be the case at the end of the book. Spoiler alert. But we discover that Dorothy's caretakers, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em, have fallen on some financial issues, largely to do with the tornado that caused Dorothy's first trip to Oz. Again, that's sort of a main part of the history of Oz that I think many of us know about. And so Uncle Henry is struggling to pay for his house, and he has 30 days to make a payment on his mortgage before he and the rest of the family will be evicted. And in true caregiver fashion, you know, he's like, I'm not upset for myself. I'm just upset for Dorothy. So they know that Dorothy has been going back and forth to this mysterious land that she calls Oz. And they don't really know if they believe her, but they sort of are like, oh, whatever. Like she's a dreamer, like her mother, like, you know, let her kind of keep talking about Oz. And then when they need her to leave, it seems like they're like pretty quick to be like, yeah, she can just go to that fake place that she's always telling us about. Yeah. And that, that was something that I found very funny when I was reading the beginning. Cause I was like, yeah. well, do they believe her or not? Because they, they seem yeah. to be just sort of indulging her like fantasies of this, you know, of this fairyland. But then when, when, you know, the chips are down, they're just sort of, she's, you know, she's like, well, I can go, you know, I can go there. And they're like, <laughs> All right, go for it. Like, at Great. what point? Have Problem they, solved. Yeah, at what point have they made that decision that it's an actual place that she can go <laughs> to? So I, I thought that was a very funny moment. Yeah, it seemed like they were really excited to embrace it as a real place when it was convenient for them. <laughs> and then again, like they obviously are very focused on Dorothy's safety and her happiness. And I guess if nothing else, she seemed happy when she was off wherever she says that she was. So they're like, okay, I guess you can just go there. <laughs> So Dorothy goes to Oz and we discover that Dorothy has been made a princess of Oz by Ozma of Oz, who is the ruler of the land. And Ozma, as we meet her, I think for the first time in Ozma of Oz, and she's this like young, beautiful, like she almost in my mind, she looks like Glinda, but younger. Like she's this blonde, gorgeous child who just so happens to be a benevolent royal. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the original, um, like the original books have the the amazing illustrations by John Arneal, where it's they're very, I want to say Art Deco, and I could be wrong in the the style, mm. but she's she's beautiful. She's got, I mean, I I love the the pictures that he draws of Ozma. She's this very dainty, gorgeous little figure. Yeah, and together they are like these just two sweet, adorable best friends. Yeah, and so Dorothy is like very happy to go back to Oz. But she's like, look, Ozma, I would really like for my Uncle Henry and Aunt Em to come here and they can leave all of the worries of the real world behind. Like, can they come to Oz and hang with us? And Ozma uses her powers to bring them, despite the fact that they like clearly do not want to come. Like they have communicated very openly that they do not want to leave Kansas. They are comfortable where they are. Maybe they're being a little bit martyrish, but they're like, no, this is what we do. We we live in Kansas. We work hard. If the farm goes down, we all go down together. But Ozma uses her powers and suddenly Uncle Henry and Aunt Em just kind of show up in the throne room in the Emerald City. What did you think of that whole thing? I like had such mixed feelings because as an adult and like, you know, a 2022, 2023 adult, I'm like, excuse me, ladies, these adults have been very clear with you about their boundaries (laughs) and you are using your magic to take advantage of them. 
But of course, I also was like, oh, this is so exciting. Like, what a fun twist that we're going to get to see Aunt Em and Uncle Henry in Oz. Well, I thought it was really funny. And it was one of that was one of the yeah, exactly like, you know, high consent. (laughs) But it was it's one reason that I think that it's difficult to read children's books through adult eyes. Because as a kid, you're just like, oh, I'm, we're going to do this and it's going to be fun. You know, and, and Dorothy even says like, you know, how would she, I think she says, let me go home and, and let them know we're going to do this and get them ready. And Ozma's like, no, we're just going to do it. They're going to love it. <laughs> They're going to love it. Like, it's going to be very, you know, and that's a very kid way to think, a very childlike way to think of like, you know, oh, we don't need to prepare them. We're just going to do it and it's going to be fun. And so, so yeah, so they just, you know, she just magically snaps them to Oz and like Annabs in the middle of like washing dishes like wearing house slippers and her hair is all a mess and she's all upset. She's like literally like holding a dish in her hand and like uncle Henry was in the barn doing chores. So he's in like, he's like ratty overalls and they're both like horrified that they're in the throne room. And, and I think one of them even says like, you know, if you'd let us know, we could have at least put on our nice clothes. And they're just like, no, it's funny. And, so it, yeah, one of those things like, yeah, as an adult, I'd be like, okay, that was kind of a bratty thing to do. But but you're reading a kid's book and the kid's book is aimed towards kids. And, and that's funny if you're a kid to catch the adults off guard, catch the parental figures off guard and see, look, I was right all along about Oz and I wasn't lying and I wasn't, you know, dreaming or whatever. So it's definitely, I think, something that if you're reading it as a child, you definitely see it one way. And if you read it as an adult, you see it another way. Yeah. Consent issues aside, (laughs) I do think that as an adult reader, I was immediately excited to see these characters that we've come to know in a very specific way in pop culture in a very different environment. Like I couldn't wait to see what it would be like for the aunt and uncle who we only know as like very hardworking, very serious all that they do is work as far as yeah. we know. Like they don't live a glamorous life at all. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. Just to like see how they, how these worlds are going to collide. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I failed to mention when we started talking that there's an introduction in this book written by the author. And he talks about how um, there were a lot of suggestions from kid readers that inspired the Emerald City of Oz. And so he wants to credit all of his young readers who helped him write this book. And I like to think that maybe this was one of the suggestions that readers made. Like we want to see more of Aunt Em and Uncle Henry and we want to see them in Oz. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was a really cute introduction too. That could definitely have been a suggestion. And I know this is kind of is getting ahead of ourselves, but I would imagine that some of those suggestions would be like all of the different places that they go later in the book, all the different high types of characters that they meet. I'm sure that those, I'm sure that some of those were also suggestions from readers. I agree. You can see in this book, like where those fingerprints of little kids might be, um, because you can just like, it's delightful for them. So for sure, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em show up. And I have to say that Uncle Henry and Aunt Em might be like the originators of hustle culture, because there's a whole scene in which they're like, we are not used to not being able to work. Like we cannot relax because all that Ozma wants them to do is chill. Like she sets them up in these beautiful rooms she wants them to not even worry about what they look like, even though everybody in Oz is always very formal. She's like, come as you are. I'm not that worried about it. You're just here to relax because Dorothy is a princess. You don't need to do anything. And they cannot wrap their head around not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Like they just need, they're like, give me a task, which feels very 2022, <laughs> 2023 of them, if, if I could be so bold. 
Right, right. No, I agree. And it's, I mean, it makes sense where they, that's all they, that's what they do is they work, you know, they work to survive their whole lives. And so they don't know what to do with themselves, you know, any other time. Yeah. Dorothy is sort of interesting because she like straddles these two sensibilities. Um, and we see that at the beginning when she's like reflecting on what to do about her aunt and uncle's financial situation. She's like so painfully good. Like she I think as readers are meant to believe that like she can do no wrong. She can think no wrong. She's just impeccable in every way. But she has one moment in particular where like, I forget exactly how it was phrased, but it was something about like, imagine me, a princess in Oz, like cleaning here in Kansas. Like she is straddling these two worlds. Yeah. And I thought that there were some interesting like, maybe nuances to like class in those moments because she doesn't quite know where she belongs. Yeah. And she does. Yeah. She says something like, um, you know, cause they're talking about if they lose the farm, what are they going to have to do? And, and they're all going to have to you know, go somewhere else and find work. And Dorothy's going to have to go find work, which I thought was an interesting way to think of, you know, the, cause Dorothy's young. She's like 10 years old. I think she's very, very yeah. young. So they're talking about her going off to be like, I don't know, a governess or something. And and yeah, and or cleaning, cleaning floors or whatever. And yeah, she's like, you know, just it's just so funny to think that I would be doing that while, you know, in Oz, I'm a princess. And yeah, and I almost kind of kind of wanted to smack her a little bit there. Just, you know, shut up, Dorothy. But <laughs> again, <laughs> I think that's reading as an adult as opposed to reading right. as a child. Grow up, Dorothy. So so yeah, it definitely is a is a class thing maybe that Dorothy's wrestling with there and trying to figure out where she belongs and which reality makes more sense to her maybe. Generally speaking, how did you find Dorothy coming to this book as an adult? I mean, of course she's written for young readers and I remember Dorothy from my own first encounters with Oz as like she's everything that I wanted to be. I never was Dorothy for Halloween, but I wanted to be Dorothy for Halloween. Who among us did not want to wear the gingham dress and the sparkly red shoes? But she she reads differently when you come back to her when when you are older. And um, I'm curious if you had that experience as well. Yeah, she's definitely. Well, I think that Dorothy in the books is definitely a little bit different than Dorothy in the movie. So that's definitely a yeah. distinction to have. Dorothy in the books, um, especially you know as we go along in the plot where she where they're exploring, you know they're taking they kind of take Anna and Uncle Henry on this little whirlwind tour of Oz. And she, she, she kind of isn't a very good ambassador. There's a couple of times where she shows up in, you know, certain, certain places and she just sort of demands things. And, you know, or you're reading as an adult going, okay, you could be a little nicer. You could be a little more polite. So, so yeah, you know, Dorothy's probably not my favorite human being in the world when I'm, when I go back and read these and as, as an adult, but I really do try to remember that one, they're written for children and two, they were written over a hundred years ago. So yeah. that's two very dis- important distinctions. I agree. Those are, it's hard, it's hard to come to this book without that reminder. Typically the books we read for the podcast aren't quite this old. Yeah, so I'm sure. It's, you know, we tend to sort of live in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, sometimes 90s. So reminder listeners, this book was written in 1910. Yeah. So this is extremely old. Okay. So as you mentioned, Jen, the little group of friends from Oz is going to go on a tour. Ozma decides that like, Look, Aunt M, Uncle Henry, you got to get out of the castle. You are clearly not adjusting. They're to freaking life. out. Well, yeah, you're freaking out. <laughs> Why don't you just like go for a road trip? Is is sort of the the message here? And so 
Um, they decide that they're, they're going to show Aunt Em and Uncle Henry around their new home. And they're going to go to places to which Dorothy has never been. And um, they go with the sawhorse and Belina the chicken and a few other creatures um, that Dorothy has befriended over her visits to Oz and the wizard, of course. Um, and they're going to places that even the wizard hasn't seen. They go to so many different places. And this is what made me think about the Phantom Toll Booth because it just reminded me of like all of the different spots that Milo gets to experience on his journey. And each each little city, each little land that they go to is so different. Um, and it's in, each one is inhabited by a different little population of creatures that's unique and quirky and just delightful really to read. So I don't think we're going to be able to cover all of these encounters. So Jen, let's talk about a couple of your favorites. Which of those visits did you most enjoy re reliving as an adult? Um, I think I actually really liked the paper doll one that was cut and clipped. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Which it was an odd, again, you're reading this as an adult and you know, when you read something like that as a child, you just sort of accept it and it's, and it's fine. And then as an adult, you read it and you ask questions, but it was really interesting. It's a, it's a girl who basically loves paper dolls and she's, you know, c like creating paper dolls, but she wanted them to be alive. So Glinda gave her like living paper. So then she cuts out these paper dolls and they come to life and they just so, and, but then she's worried about, you know, them getting blown away by the wind. So Glinda basically creates this like walled village situation. So this little girl lives by herself in this village with nothing but her paper dolls. And it's one of those things like, as an, and she talks about she's been living there for centuries. So, you know, on the one hand, we read that as a kid and you're like, oh, that's so cool. And then you read that as an adult and you're like, centuries? Really? Like, yeah, you know, sad. you're getting into like <laughs> vampire territory. Like, what's it like to live that long? But, you know, you don't have those existential questions when you're reading this as a, as a seven-year-old. But I just thought it was really cool because it, there are all these different little paper dolls and they have little paper houses and little paper... I think they were pumping paper water out of a paper well into a paper bucket. And yeah. it was just really cute. And then the shaggy man sneezes and everybody goes flying and they get thrown out basically. <laughs> so it's just stuff like that. I just think is really, really cute. And he, I think that that's something that Baum does really well, that he just writes these little, you know, vignettes of these little characters and they're just, they're just joyous and they're just fun. But then there's also the little element of danger. It's like, you know, somebody laughs too hard and a little paper doll falls over. And it's like, oh, don't do yeah. that. And I don't know. I just think that that kind of thing is really, really cute and something that he does really well. Yeah. Each encounter, each destination could almost be read as a standalone short story. Oh, definitely. Um, which I thought was really fun and would make for such fun read aloud time um, with kids if you're just like, you know, looking for a little story to share with them. I really thought that Utensia was brilliant, mostly because of all of the wordplay. So oh, my gosh. Utensia, yeah is populated by different kitchen utensils and it's just really funny i i can't say more than that it's just so clever like the puns that he uses with all of these different utensils is gold i really like the flutter budgets as well they yes. um, are like the dramatic exaggerators they catastrophize everything they're afraid to pick up their babies and do something just because like, what if we drop the baby and then this will happen and then this will happen. And we all know people like that in our lives. Like we, we all know people who do that. I felt very attacked reading that section, honestly, because <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I am a person who will lie awake at night, just consumed by what ifs, you know, and they're ridiculous, yeah. but I, I can't get, turn my brain off. And so when I read that section where it was like, you know, 
oh, my wife's bleeding to death. And they're like, oh, my God, what happened? And she's like, well, I, I kind of cut my finger. But what if I have to have my finger cut off and then I bleed to death? And it was just like this ridiculous, yeah. you know, mounting catastrophe thing that these people freak out about. And I was like, wow, maybe I shouldn't go on WebMD as much as I do, you know. <laughs> it's a lot of worst case scenario happening. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was something that it, and that I thought was very funny that it, that was written, you know, to go back to say that was written in 1910. And that's yeah. obviously something that people did then for him to write about it like that. And the fact that it's still is still going on now. Yeah. I also wanted to do a little shout out to Bunnybury and Bunbury. Yes. Um, two towns that Dorothy finds her way to when she gets separated from the rest of the group. And this one goes out to my dog, Irving, because... His favorite food is bread, like all varieties of bread. We have a joke in our house that when, you know, if we eat um, Italian food and he's getting a little like heel of Italian bread, we say it's breads of the world. He's going to Italy. He loves tortillas. Breads of the world. We're going to Mexico. So we do this like we have this whole like breads of the world bit. We are childless millennials. Um, so that's <laughs> worth noting as well. But he also loves bunnies. And so I was like. Irv would really thrive in this little intersection between Bunnybury, which is populated only by rabbits, and Bunbury, where everything is a, is a different type of bread. Yeah, that's perfect. I love it. Yeah, I know. I was reading this and I was like, oh, you would love it here. But Bunnybury was kind of interesting in a more serious way because Dorothy meets like the ruler of the bunnies and he is so deeply unhappy as king like he remembers when he was just like a normal bunny he was like frolicking and doing what bunnies do and he decides that he doesn't want to be the king anymore he wants to go back to just being a rabbit and Dorothy is like I can talk to Glinda about that but they end up having this whole negotiation because he wants to be a regular bunny, but he would be sad to lose like a lot of the trappings of royalty. And so he kind of like can't decide if he wants to go back to being a bunny or if he wants to keep his title. And I thought that that was actually kind of like a good lesson. Like you have to take the bad with the good. And, and appreciate the things that you have too. You know, it was definitely a, a grass is greener kind of situation with him. Where, yeah, he wanted to go back to being a rabbit because he didn't like being king. But then every single thing that came up, he's like, well, I want to go back to being a regular rabbit, but keep my fancy clothes, but keep my my jugglers that amuse me or keep my fancy food. And she's like, okay, you can't bring those things into a hole in the ground. Like, what are you what are you doing here, buddy? So, yeah, it was definitely I thought, you know, appreciate what you've got kind of a lesson. And I like that, you know, that that sort of those sorts of things happened a lot in those those different places that they went to, there were like, sometimes there were these little life lessons. And I thought that one was really, well, very, almost, I want to say subtly put in there, because it wasn't all that subtle, but, but it wasn't preachy about it. But it just kind of told you that story. And then you sort of could, you know, extrapolate it for yourself and go, Oh, okay. Yeah. So while all of this is happening, we have the other plot running with the Gnome King and the Gnome King is the villain in the story. And he decides that he wants to get his revenge on Ozma and Dorothy because they have taken his magic belt. And we see that scene in Ozma of Oz where the Gnome King's magic belt is taken away. And this magic belt basically allows you to get anything that you want. And the Gnome King wants it back, which like, can you blame the guy? That yeah. sounds like a really cool thing to have. So he, at the beginning of the story, is like rallying all of his internal troops. And he settles on this gnome named Guff, who agrees to go secure alliances with other creatures in other lands and so interspersed with the scenes of Dorothy and all of her friends taking the tour of Oz 
we see Guff going and securing support from other villainous groups who say that they will help the Gnome King and the rest of the gnomes go through this underground tunnel that they're building and take over Oz. Um, And he secures the support of three different groups, all of whom are extremely scary in different ways. And he bargains with them. So um, the first group, he agrees to bargain the power of the magic belt. The second group, this one was really dark. He was like, yes, you may have 20,000 slaves from the land of Oz. And then the third group, he doesn't quite understand what he's giving away. But that third group is like the scariest. And he doesn't know that what they really want to do is take over the gnomes in addition to the folks who live in Oz. So he really feels like he's doing a great job because he's gotten all of the support to bring back to the Gnome King, but he's really given away a lot of what they're hoping to achieve in the first place. Yeah. So there's some military strategy happening here, you know, just like a little casual strategy for kids. Yeah, exactly. Prepare you to play Risk later in your life or something. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. And it's kind of like, it was a little distracting for me. Um, I kind of just wanted to like live in the happy parts, which I guess is just normal for all of us. Like I didn't want to know what was happening with this creepy guy, Guff. And like a lot of these other creatures that he was meeting seemed really scary. I didn't love the visuals of them. Yeah. It's very much like a good versus evil situation. And there's not a lot out there in terms of like reviews and commentary on this book online. But I will say that if if I found one pattern in the commentary that I did stumble on, it had to do with Ozma's reaction to the news of what is happening with the Gnome King. Because we learn about two thirds of the way through the book that Ozma actually knows that the Gnome King is planning to attack her and Emerald City. She knows that he is digging this really long tunnel so that he can sneak up to get her. And she doesn't do anything about it. She is pretty clear about the fact that like she refuses to fight or do anything. She is really like as pacifist as it gets. People are frustrated with that because like Dorothy and the other travelers, they hurry back to Oz because they think that they're going to be needed to fight against the gnomes. And Ozma is very much like, no, I'm not, you know, if, if my kingdom goes down, I'm going down too. This is just the way it has to be. And I will say that that's kind of refreshing because this book has like such a fairy tale quality. And I feel like in the fairy tales I read growing up, even the quote, like good guys were always so ready to fight. And it just always led to like an all out violent war. And so it's great if you can find sort of like a healthy in between where kids aren't reading about bloody wars all the time. But I also felt like concerned about asthma because I was like, excuse me, asthma. I don't think you understand what's about to happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, that was something that sort of frustrated me too to to reread this as a grown up. And I don't know, I don't know what she was. Yeah, I guess she was just thinking. Well, I guess we're going down because you know the the solution to the problem doesn't happen and you know until the very end, um, or doesn't get you know decided upon until the very end. So, so yeah, I don't really know what what she's thinking. I mean. She does sort of have that sort of defeatist, you know, well, if I, you know, we go down and we go down together, but she doesn't seem concerned even, you know, she finds out, oh, he's building this tunnel and she's just like, huh, look at that. I mean, it's not even something that she's worried about. I mean, they don't really have much of an army anymore, so it makes sense that there's not, there's not a lot, there are no troops to rally, really. So she'd have to, you know, I guess you know, get all the, the townspeople that just sort of live in harmony. There's a lot made at the beginning. I did see somebody, somebody mentioned this um, in, a, in a review or something that 
there's a lot of talk about the structure of, I don't know if government's the right word, but it's very much a utopian society. And that's not something that I know a whole lot about philosophically, but it's definitely set up as a utopian society. So I don't know if that ties into the pacifistness of Ozma's thinking. Yeah, I did pull out one paragraph from the beginning of the book that speaks to what you just mentioned, Jen. It says, no diseases of any sort were ever known among the Ozites, and so no one ever died unless he met with an accident that prevented him from living. This happened very seldom indeed. There were no poor people in the land of Oz because there was no such thing as money, and all property of every sort belonged to the ruler. Each person was given freely by his neighbors whatever he required for his use, which is as much as anyone may reasonably desire. So yes, like this is a very utopian society. People get what they need. It's not that hard to ask for what you need. Nobody's ever sick. Nothing bad ever really seems to happen. Um, so yes, it kind of lends itself to Ozma's philosophy. Later on, she says, I do not wish to fight. No one has the right to destroy any living creatures, however evil they may be or to hurt them or make them unhappy. I will not fight even to save my kingdom. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that those two pieces do kind of feel consistent. Yeah. So that was one thing that I was thinking about too, when I was getting a little frustrated with her, it's like, well, she doesn't want to fight because that's not what they do. You know, that's not, yeah. not what, what they do there in the Emerald City. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the cool thing is that the, that the Scarecrow, who we all know and love, even if you've never read the book, you know him from the movie, you know that his whole thing was that he wanted a brain. He realizes that he has an opportunity to try to hack this with his brain <laughs> instead of with his bronze. And he realizes that if he is strategic about getting all of these enemy troops into something called the Forbidden Fountain, he can solve this whole problem without actually having to hurt anybody. And the Forbidden Fountain is this fountain that has water in it that when it's consumed, the person who drinks it then like forgets everything that they ever knew. And so through this like series of events, all of the enemy troops um, end up drinking that water. And what I love the most was that Dorothy is like, and the best thing about this is that all of these evil people now forget that they were ever evil to begin with. And that is the best case scenario, right? Like in an ideal world, there would be a forbidden fountain that we could actually casually escort people to when they were going to do bad things <laughs> instead of violently attacking them. And then not only would we avoid the violent attack, but we would also, you know, just kind of like lose them as an adversary because they would forget that they had ever been bad to begin with. So I, I love that as a device. Yeah. And it was, it's, yeah, it's like giving all the enemies like a big reset button basically and just starting them over. Yeah. As, it's a reboot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and I loved the part where they, you know, where the Gnome King doesn't drink from the fountains, so they just throw them in there and then he accidentally drinks some of it. And then they just tell him, you know, oh, you're a king of, see all those, all that, that big army in the, that's still in the hole because they were still in the tunnel. They hadn't come out yet. <laughs> And they're like, just tell your troops to march home and they will. And he's like, oh, cool. And he does that. And then they all leave. Yeah. And Which, you know, tells you that the, the gnome army itself doesn't really care one way or the other if they conquer Oz. They're yeah. just doing what they're told. So they're just like, oh, we're going home now. Never mind. So much yeah. so much for this. Bye. In, so much for this invasion and the fact that we've been digging this tunnel for all this time and all that. We don't care anymore. And they just skedaddle on back home. Go on home. <laughs> so the, the biggest consequence of this is that they realize that really like Oz has been compromised. Like the more people and objects that come in 
to Oz from the outside, like the worst things are going to get. And so Glinda comes and decides that she's going to like seal off Oz and Dorothy and Aunt Em and Uncle Henry, if they're going to be there, they're like going to be the last people that ever get in from the outside. And we, we talked about this at the beginning, Jen, but like this is really like where we come back to the fact that L. Frank Baum was like, and we're done. Yeah. Like <laughs> Oz is done forever. And the last chapter has this letter uh, in it that is written from Dorothy that uh, she wrote to the author. And she said, you will never hear anything more about Oz because we are now cut off forever from all the rest of the world. But Toto and I will always love you and all the other children who love us. And... <laughs> I just have like as a as a writer like when you get really frustrated with your characters or with your universe that you're working on like do you ever wish that you could be like you know what I'm just gonna write a letter we're done we're done like (laughs) like let's just this will be amicable I'm not mad let's just make this a clean break we're gonna consciously uncouple a la Gwyneth Paltrow and and Chris Martin (laughs) (laughs) exactly well that's what I I really I thought was kind of hilarious yeah like Dorothy's little letter at the end was just like such a perfect little kiss off she's just like ciao we're out you know like we're bye (laughs) and and you could really tell especially just that last chapter you could really tell that that was why he wrote this book right like he's just like wanting to cut it all off and so I think that that's one reason that he wrote all of these little you know them seeing all these different little cities it was like to give everybody this one last little tour of Oz before it's over and you know, they sprinkle in a lot of talk about, you know, airships because, you know, planes were becoming a thing and all of these different ways that, you know, that, yeah, that Oz has been compromised, you know, without going too much into it. Even the first, you know, the first few books up to book six are about all the ways that people are getting into Oz when, you know, it's supposed to be pretty hard to get to. There's a, it's surrounded by the deadly desert. So you're not supposed to be able to just casually walk in, but there's have been all of these ways that, that people have gotten in anyway. So, so yeah, that last chapter is just, you know, about Glenda being like, well, you know, we're going to cut it off. You can't even see it from the air. You can't. And one thing, and then just to, wow, casually pivot to a different kind of topic. It's interesting to me that Oz is part of the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like existing on a different plane of existence, like, like say Alice in Wonderland, you know, where yes. you go to a different universe, like you're not. Yeah, they they talk about the United States of America a lot. Like even right. even like Kansas. even like Ozites that they meet along the way know where America is or know what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's not just yeah. fairyland, vague fairyland. It's it's definitely like part of our earth, which I thought was was very interesting. That was something that I hadn't really thought about until I did this reread that it's really part of I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Which I thought was a very interesting distinction. So so Glinda cutting it off means that, you know, planes flying overhead can't see it and you're not going to be able to stumble into it. So it, it's it's part of our, it's still, technically, I guess it's still part of our earth. It's just, we can't see it. <laughs> it's out there somewhere. It's out yeah, there I somewhere. mean, I think if anything, it's almost like, I feel like Dorothy is celebrated as this like Midwestern girl, which is a very like part of our real world experience, certainly in the early 20th century, like in that way, the book is actually kind of patriotic. And so Mm -hmm. if it's going to be patriotic about that kind of, you know, American philosophy, it certainly can't be removed from our reality. Yeah. So I think that so that was that's interesting to me that he chose to tell it that way or chose to make it, you know, make it like that. But yeah, it, as a writer, it's very interesting to uh, to to just have him just be like, "Yep, that's it," and dusting his hands off, and 
saying I'm done writing this Bye. series all over. <laughs> yep. Thanks. Thanks everyone. It's been real. <laughs> exactly. It was so, yeah, it was, it was, even though I knew it was coming, cause I know that that's what happens at the end of the book when I, when I was doing the reread, I, I kind of cracked up at that last chapter and that last yeah. little letter from Dorothy. Cause it's just so abrupt and it's so like, and we're done. We're done. Yeah. Well, and I didn't see it coming because I, mm. I had never read the book before and I didn't know prior to reading it that it was intended to be the series finale. So when I got to it, I was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> Aren't there more books? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a very deliberate, you know, a deliberate choice that he was that he was trying real hard to make and, and then just had to go back to it because it was too popular. Yeah. On the whole, Jen, what was the experience of coming back to the Emerald City of Oz like? Does the Oz universe, does Dorothy, does the book, does it all hold up to your memory of it or did it let you down? I don't know if it holds up as well as, as I would want it to, but at the same time, again, it goes back to reading something with adult eyes, right? The thing that I found the most interesting was, was how certain phrases just had imprinted on me. And they're not even particularly interesting phrases, but just the fact that I read these books so many times as a kid, they became just a part of my my brain, really. So just little phrases like um, that, the one, you know, that we talked about how General Guff, the gnome guy, goes to all these different, you know, villain kingdoms. And the, the head of one of them is called the first and foremost. And for some reason, that phrase, first and foremost, just like, I don't know, like triggered a memory in my brain of, of reading those books for the first time, you know, as a kid. So I, I don't know if they would, I don't know if they would hold up and I don't know at the same time, maybe they would, because like we talked, you talked about Utensia and I, I really think that that would be a, a, a particularly would be a section that would be really fun to read aloud to a kid. And it's got a really good mix of those jokes that a child would get and jokes that an adult would get which I think are the signs of a really successful children's book. I mean, I'm not an authority on kid, on kid lit or anything like that, but I think that to be successful, you know, you kind of have to appeal to, you know, to the adult that's reading the book to the kid as well, you know, to make the adult want to read the book to the kid. So I think in those ways it does hold up and it was a lot more modern in its prose and its sensibility than I expected it to be. But that said, I'm not sure that I would like go back and read all 14 of my Oz books right now as, you know, a 50 year old adult. So Fair. so there's that. But, you know, am I going to yeah. am I going to watch the movie again? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm still yeah. Oz is still a part of who I am and who I who I you know, who I was as a, as a child, as a formative person. One of the one to, you know, tangent a tiny bit. One of the very first things I ever wrote as a as a child was a fan fiction of <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Amazing. Where I, I um I was obsessed with reading as a kid, so I became obsessed with writing, and I would just write stories um in uh, on notebook paper, and we kept it. We kept my mom kept one for years, and I I think it's probably gone now. But it was you know there once was a little girl named Dorothy. She lived in Kansas with her uncle Henry and her aunt Emma and a dog named Toto. One day there was a cyclone, but this was a different one, so she made it to the cellar in time. The end. So that was. <laughs> That was AU fan fiction before AU fan fiction was a thing. So I love it. <laughs> so it's definitely part of my DNA for sure. 
Well, I'm so glad you introduced me to this one. I will reiterate what I said at the beginning, which is that this is my favorite Oz book that I've read so far. I really struggled through Ozma of Oz and even oh, really? The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I had a hard time reading those, but I had such a fun time reading this book. Okay. And so thank you for putting it on my radar. I really liked it and such an interesting piece of, of his history just as a writer as well. Other than the Emerald City of Oz, Jen, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? I will. I, and if, if anybody's heard me say anything in the past six months or so, I've said this already, but The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy by Megan Bannon is probably the best book I read in 2022. It's a fantasy romance. It's bonkers. It's romantic. It's sexy. It's funny. It's so good. It's it's and it's very very hard to describe. So it's kind of an enemies to lovers. Yet they're you know they hate each other. Yet they're anonymously writing each other letters. It's it's beautiful, in a in a crazy fantasy world that has zombies in it. So I highly recommend it. It's just a lot of fun. Kate Claiborne has a new book coming out next month. Georgie all along that I I love anything that Kate Claiborne writes. She's just a genius when it comes to to prose. Small Game by Blair Braverman is. A novel that's set around the making of a Survivor-style reality show um, about these, like, I don't want to say five people that are, you know, that are stranded together on an island to survive, and um, then the crew vanishes and things go very, very wrong. So it's um, it's kind of a thriller-type book. It's very, very good. Great. Well, those all sound like excellent recommendations, and I will include links to them in the show notes for this week's episode. We also need to talk about your new book. As this episode drops in January of 2023, your new book has been out for about six weeks. Congratulations. Yeah. Tell you. us all about it. Well, Well Traveled is the fourth book in my uh, series of books of romances that take place in the world of the Renaissance Fair. Um, and this book is a little bit of a departure because it doesn't take place in the small town of Willow Creek, Maryland, where the first three books have been set. This one actually goes on the road with a band that's on the Renaissance Fair circuit. So we we stop it at a couple of different places and, and do a couple of different run fairs. It is about um, a woman named Lulu Malone, who is a cousin of Mitch Malone, who is the hero of the third book. She is a type A lawyer who is you know trying to make partner and she's been promised she's going to be partner eventually. She's uh, taking a break at a, at a local Renaissance Fair um, because it's something that reminds her of her cousin. She's on but her job won't leave her alone. Her phone's ringing every five minutes. And in the course of all these phone calls, realizes that this dream that she's been chasing isn't the dream that she wants. It's never going to happen. So she just throws her phone in a tub of water and quits her job and finds herself at loose ends. So she ends up going on the road with the Renaissance Fair, and um, which she describes as a life plan written by a 10-year-old. <laughs> but it turns out that getting off the radar and just you know figuring out what she's going to do next is exactly what she needs. And what uh, what she thinks she doesn't need is a man named Dex McLean, who is um, a sexy guitar player who wears a kilt and has a woman at every stop on the Renfair circuit. He's definitely like she I, th- I described him as the Renfair bicycle because everyone's had a ride. Mm. And um, <laughs> he's you know, he, he hits on her immediately because that's his default um, thing to do. And she turns him down. So the weirdest thing happens and they become actual friends, which is something that he's not used to doing with a woman. So uh, they become friends, then they probably become something more because it's a romance novel. And, um, <laughs> and that's it. You know, he's never had to work, work for a whole lot because he's having a good time just doing his thing. And, but there, the future of the band is in question. So he's actually had to consider his future for the first time. So Lulu and Dex come at life from two different directions. And um, 
then we figure out if they are destined to walk the same path together. Oh, well, listeners, you got to check out Well Traveled. You have to check out all of Jen's work. I'll include links to all of your books in the show notes. Jen, it has been so much fun chatting with you. And I have every confidence that with you at this turning point in your career in this series, you will totally do what L. Frank Baum did and just continue forge ahead in a very successful direction, whatever direction that might be. <laughs> Thank you so much. I certainly hope to. <laughs> This was so fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>